Well, I'm going to be reading our scripture passage and then praying and then preaching this morning. So if you have a Bible, please turn with me to Acts chapter 18. I'll pause for a moment if you want to take out a phone or tablet or use the one in the pew. Acts chapter 18. I'm going to be beginning in verse 18 and reading through to the middle of chapter 20. Chapter 19, excuse me, 1920. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and sent sail for Syria and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At Crenchrea he had cut his hair for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus And he left them there, but he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. When he had landed in, um, excuse, excuse me, when he had landed in Caesarea, or Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. Chapter 19, verse 1. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. And he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? They said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about twelve men in all. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hand of Paul 
so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastering all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. This is God's word. Thanks be to God for it. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, I think of that line in verse 17 that when they encountered the real Jesus, fear, reverence, awe, wonder, gratitude fell upon the people, the congregation, the disciples in awe of the name of Jesus. I pray that as we study this passage and see not merely what Apollos is up to or what Peter or Paul is up to and others, we would see what you are up to. And not only in the pages of Acts, but here in our own day as well. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. When you're driving a car on a highway at speed, you're driving along on a highway at speed, you, you can't slow down and take in every detail. You're going to miss what matters most. There's the road that's unfolding before you. There's the cars that are around you. There's the signs, the key signs that will tell you, okay, this is your destination, not that one. That's what matters most, the road, the cars, the signs. And there's overlap there, driving at speed on a highway, with what it means to preach long passages. We can't pull over and look at every detail on every billboard or every roadside attraction. If we stop and get coffee at every diner along the way and talk to all the locals, we're going to learn a whole lot. But we're not going to be able to cover the miles. The scripture passage that I just read might be better considered four passages. But we've grouped them together because of commonalities among them. As well as what I'll say is the the final verse, chapter 19, verse 20, a a summary verse. 
happen occasionally throughout the book of Acts. There's these summary verses, and, and this feels like a good summary verse, so it, it makes sense to group everything that comes before it. And so the, that's, the, that's one reason, the summary verse, but the commonalities. This is the beginning of what we call Paul's third missionary journey. Paul goes on three missionary journeys in the book, so this is his final one. He's going to journey some 1,500 miles on this journey. So if you started in Harrisburg and went down to the very tip of Florida along the coastline, sometimes along the coast, sometimes perhaps in the ocean, that would be something like the distance Paul is going to travel. Let me show you that here in the verses. I'll read verses 22 and 23 again. And again, just if you had a Bible, just go ahead and leave it open. I'm going to be referring to it often. When he had landed in Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. That's the key city I'm going to mention. Then after spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. The key city is Antioch. If you had a piece of paper in front of you, maybe you do, maybe you have a pen, you're going to draw a circle, you'd have to start somewhere, and and you draw that circle, and and wherever you started, you come back to. That's how Antioch functions in Paul's ministry journeys. And now if you're going to draw three circles right on top of each other, you'd you'd start one place and come back around three times, and and I guess the fourth time, you'd you'd be right where you started to begin. That's how Antioch works. Now, It's a little different than that because Paul doesn't exactly draw three circles and he doesn't exactly take the same route. And in fact, on the third journey, it's curtailed through persecution and jail, which we're going to be covering in the coming months. So it's not exactly three circles, but it all comes back around to Antioch. So again, we group them together. In verse 24, we meet this man named Apollos who happens to meet a husband and wife named Aquila and Priscilla. Now, Apollos is a Jew from North Africa. Aquila and Priscilla, this husband and wife couple, they had recently traveled from Italy um, to the region. And we don't know why Apollos is in Ephesus. We know that Priscilla and Aquila, they led, led um, or left Italy, left Rome because of persecution. They end up in Corinth, and then now they end up here with the Apostle Paul in Ephesus. And we don't know why Apollos is in Ephesus, but, but, but what we do know is the Lord has brought these three together for his own good purposes. Look how Paul, excuse me, Luke introduces Apollos, verse 24 and 25. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures, He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, being fervent in spirit. He spoke and taught accurately concerning things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. So what he knew, he preaches. Evidently, quite boldly, with fervency it's described. But he didn't know the whole gospel story. John was... John the Baptist, or John the Baptizer, is is this forerunner for the Messiah, He's, he's, God sends him to get the people ready for Jesus. And Apollos knew only the beginning of the gospel story, what, what John preached about Jesus, and perhaps maybe some of what Jesus preached himself, but he doesn't know the whole story. And so this husband and wife couple, they pull him aside, 
And we read in verse 26, they, quote, explain the way of God more accurately. So he's teaching accurately, but he's now going to learn it more accurately. Now, we don't have to wait long for the answer. But I'll pause and just ask how you might expect that conversation to go. Here's a man who's eloquent and learned and well-traveled. And he's pulled aside and told he's doing it wrong. Or at least what he's doing is incomplete. He only knows part of the gospel. The arrival of Jesus, but not his full life and death and resurrection. How's that rebuke going to go? How do you expect it to go? How do you like to be pulled aside and rebuked? This shouldn't go well. That is, unless King Jesus is at work, giving birth to humility and teachability and and causing, causing people in unlikely and wonderful ways to value God's reputation more than their own. King Jesus is at work here in this passage, and it would seem that Apollos does. He, he has these things. He's, he's humble. He's teachable. He, he loves God's honor more than his own. Luke says in verse 28 that after the conversation, he, he, quote, powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that Jesus, or that the Christ was Jesus. So that word Christ is another word for Messiah. So he's, he's looking into the scriptures, and he's seeing the promise of the coming Messiah, and he's saying, that's Jesus. And he's doing that well. Ways that people can understand it and hear it and and wrestle with those truths. So before he meets Priscilla and Aquila, Luke says in verse 24, he's competent in the scriptures. Then we read after that, he's powerful in them, refuting the Jews and understanding who Jesus is fully. So I'm just going to pause, make a few passing comments here about that. Many of you are teachers. There's a lot of teachers here at our church. And many of you are parents, and and you're laboring to see others shaped into maturity in Christ. Now, those of you who are students, children, you can cover your ears here for a minute. (laughs) Talking to the teachers, talking to the parents, and and you, you look around at all that effort and all that time, all that ministry, And then you look at your child or your student who you love so much, but you just know they don't get it. Not yet, anyway. Not fully, not as they will. I just want to point out, that's Apollos. All that learning and study of the scriptures that was poured into him, when God changed his heart, none of that work was lost. Some of you might feel like the way you're parenting and teaching is like teaching someone to ride a stationary bike. There's a lot of effort. They're just not going anywhere. What I want to say is that when God moves, all that training, all that effort, can be like swapping out that stationary bike for a real bike and they just soar. That fitness, that training, that muscle memory, that's that's not a waste. If we teach the primacy of the Bible and model a humble posture toward the Bible, good things can happen. In fact, when people humbly bow before King Jesus' words, good things already are. In the next passage, Paul goes to Ephesus. 
Ephesus is a town of town of 500,000 people. It's the religious capital of the region. Meaning Ephesus is generically a spiritual capital for all the religions in the area. And what we see happened with Apollos in this section of the passages, we see in a similar way happens with a whole group of believers. As Apollos only knew of John the Baptist and the beginnings of the gospel story, now what we see is that this group of believers only knows about John and the early teachings of Jesus. They don't seem to have the full gospel story. The story of Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection. And so Paul tells it to them. And then we read in verses 5 and 6, this is, um, on hearing this, this is chapter 19, on hearing this, the full story of Jesus, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. You hear that theme, the, the name of Jesus? And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them. In other words, when they learned of the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, they became believers. Then we read that Paul stayed for two more years teaching about people about Jesus, verses 8, 9, and 10. And his teaching was so contagious. I want you to see how Luke summarized the effects of Paul's teaching. Look at, look at verse 10. This is how Paul, or Luke summarizes Paul's teaching. All the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Paul's teaching had, about Jesus had reached such a level uh, of where Christianity was, I'll say, no longer as obscure as it was before. And, and this expansion, even this saturation of gospel ministry is going to create potential hindrances for Paul and the early church. It's a good thing, but it creates hindrances. And one of those hindrances is copycat ministry. So I'm, I'm going to read, and we'll spend more time probably just on this last section of chapter 19 in the middle, last middle section. So let me read 11 through 16. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. So that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this, but the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom the evil spirit, in whom was the evil spirit, leaped on them, mastered all of them, overpowered them, and they fled out of the house naked and wounded. I, I don't know why that detail is in there, the naked and wounded, but it, it just, it, it feels very imagistic, doesn't it? Whatever this robe situation they're wearing, the, the, like, it gets, it's gone and they're running out, and verse 17 we'll read in a minute, like, it says all Asia kind of knew of this. Yeah, they did. <laughs> This passage is, to be candid, wild. It's wild. And I think Luke even sees it that way. He writes in verse 11 that, quote, God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. Did you catch that? As though miracles were not special enough, Luke labels these miracles extraordinary. 
And they were. In a city given over to evil spirits and witchcraft and all manners of darkness and idolatry, God shows in extraordinary ways that he is the only real king. And I mentioned that led to copycat ministry. Apparently, there were Jewish exorcists trying to copy Paul. But in this case, they don't copy very well. They try to cast the demon out of the man. And do you notice the evil spirit talks back to them, asks them a question? They're like, I, I don't know who you are. Like, Jesus, Paul, but, but who are you? I don't know that they expected that. Nor did they expect the beatdown they got. I want to talk about that for a minute. Pastor David, as he was Preaching last week, had this line in a sermon which he was wrestling with, and he had heard another pastor say, and, and, and the line had to do with wanting the kingdom, but not necessarily the king. It's possible to want parts of the kingdom, but not actually want the king. You can want the power that comes with the kingdom, you can want the peace that comes with the kingdom, but not want to submit to the king of the kingdom. This is their problem. They want the power of the king without loving the person of the king. I'll say it another way. It's bad practice to make Jesus your mascot or talisman. Talisman is not a word we use very often, but it fits here in Ephesus. it's, It's a word for like a lucky object that has magical powers. Jesus is not a mascot or a talisman. There's this story in the Old Testament where the Israelites are in, the, they're in a battle. And, and the battle's not going well. This is 1 Samuel chapter 4, 5, 6, and into the beginning of 7. And so the battle's not going well. They're in the battle. And the leaders say, uh, they're going to call essentially for God. They, they say, let's fetch the ark. The ark was this decorative wooden box that held the Ten Commandments and, and a few other items. And, and it was, in the Old Testament, uh, I guess we'd say it this way, the, the, um, the manifestation, the, the most centralized manifestation of God's presence among his people. It's the closest thing they had to an incarnation. And they say, let's fetch, fetch God, let's fetch our mascot, let's fetch our lucky rabbit's foot. And they got pounded in that battle after that. God gets captured and he goes behind enemy lines and and wins the battle himself. Here in Acts, it's the same lesson. God loves you too much to let you want the kingdom without the king. God loves you so much that he might let your world fall apart so that you would meet the king. Now, what I'm not saying, that, what, what I'm not saying, what I'm not saying is that every time your world falls apart, every time you go through a hardship, it's because you're being sinful. I am not saying that. But I am saying that when we make Jesus a mere mascot, not our king, we shouldn't expect to win a lot of games. So, when you see some TV evangelist copycat ministry waving a blessed handkerchief and asking you to send you or send him money so that he can send you something in return and be blessed and have your life prosper, don't be surprised if in five years or in 15 years that ministry comes crashing down in public scandal. 
All week I've been wondering what happened to these seven sons. I'd like to think they found the king. It was humiliating. Sometimes the path to Jesus begins with humility. Sometimes humiliation. It always begins with humility. Maybe they did, maybe they didn't. I don't know. But we do know lots and lots of other people did. Look how the passage ends. Verses 17, 18, 19, and 20. And this, big surprise, became known to all the residents of Ephesus both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices, and a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. Is their magic books. Actually, the the literal Greek there is is Bibles. They're, They're magic Bibles. And they counted the value of them and found that it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. That's the summary verse. Some would say that in today's dollars, this is something like $6 million. God's gospel ministry through Paul causes so many dramatic conversions. We think just for a second. We think about those seven sons and the humility involved with them if they came back to Jesus. Think about these people. They're publicly confessing and burning what's of value to them. Humiliation there, publicly it says. God's gospel ministry through Paul causes so many dramatic conversions that it shakes the cage of economic idolatry. This theme will become the focus of the entire passage next week and that sermon. So many lost people get saved that the old sinful business practices they used to patron, um, the the business owners are so worried that they're going to go out of business that a riot breaks out. But That's next week. Here's what I want to point out as we end the sermon this week. Despite all the potential hindrances, The hope of the gospel is going forward. In this passage, we have the potential hindrance of believers, or that believers and teachers, they they don't know the full gospel. You've You've got Bible teachers that don't know the full gospel. That's a potential hindrance. Their pride could have been a potential hindrance. In this passage, we see some who are stubborn in heart. And who directly oppose the gospel. I didn't make much of that. We're going so quickly through these passage, but it's said directly in chapter 19, verse 9, quote, some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation. So Paul comes and preaches, he leaves, and they stand up and speak evil of the way, the the way of Jesus, the way of the cross, the way of forgiveness through the Messiah that is Christ. That's a potential hindrance. We also have the potential hindrance of seven religious circus leaders who want to copycat the power and authority of of the kingdom without love for the king. That's a hindrance. And then there's the hindrance of just the city of Ephesus itself, a community saturated with witchcraft and darkness. How will the gospel go forward in such a mixed-up, broken culture? Won't all these hindrances stop the advance of the good news of Jesus? No. They didn't stop the advance of the good news of Jesus. And they still don't stop 
the advance of the good news of King Jesus. At the start, I mentioned that, that, that when preaching longer passages, and perhaps just reading them for yourselves as you're moving through them on your own, whether the ones we're preaching or just your own Bible reading, it, it's like driving a car on a highway. You know, when you're driving at speed, you, you, you can't take in every detail. Or you can't lingle over every detail. You're going to miss what matters most, the road that's unfolding before you, the cars that are around you, the signs, the, the, the big road signs that say, okay, this way and not that way. That's what matters most, the road, the cars, the signs. And, and I'm sure you felt this at one time or another. I think I've even said it before here at church. But that moment you exit the highway and you get on the turnpike and you go through that toll station, that always stresses me out. Because if you look up, and there are two signs. One says Philly, and one says, what? Pittsburgh. And you just feel in your heart, this is a really important five seconds. <laughs> I feel that. And there's all sorts of things you could be looking at. You might notice what the person was wearing in the tool, the, the, you drive through, and the, the worker, oh, they're wearing an orange shirt, or Whatever. Or you might notice that in front of you there's a car and the license plate says Hawaii. And you start to think to yourself, how did a car go from Hawaii to Pennsylvania? And you're distracted. And, and all of a sudden, it's all very interesting, but it's not what matters most. What matters most, in addition to not hitting other cars as like seven lanes merged to those two choices, um, is making the right decision to not go to Philly if you're trying to go to Pittsburgh or vice versa. There are a lot of things happening in this passage that are interesting to talk about. But I don't want you to miss what matters most. Periodically as we preach, I find it helpful to remind us what the author most wants us to see. And I feel this especially when we come to these summary verses in the book of Acts. Chapter 19, verse 20. There's, there's probably six or seven of them throughout the book. And when we read the book of Acts, we're reading the account of the early, the birth of the early church as recorded by Luke, the historian, former physician, perhaps current physician, attending to Paul's injuries as he travels and is persecuted. Luke is the same author who wrote the Gospel of Luke. When he writes to the Gospel of Luke, he's writing to, to more broadly, but he's writing to this man named Theophilus, who is likely a wealthy patron who bankrolled Luke's research to write the gospel. And so I, I want to read Luke chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. It might be nice if you still have a Bible, just, just to flip over there with me. So Luke chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. This is, if Luke and Acts are two volumes, this is the first volume. The story of Jesus and the story of Jesus' church. This is how Luke begins. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Luke wants Theophilus, he wants you and I to have certainty about who Jesus is and what he did and why 
what he did and who he is matters. And so when Luke opens the book of Acts, I'm going to read the first two verses there. You don't have to flip there. Just read them quickly. When he opens his second volume, he calls back and addresses this man, Theophilus. Acts chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Come back to that phrase. Until the day he was taken up, so his ascension to the throne of the universe. After he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. Now, I'm I'm going back over old material. To remind us of the main thing Luke wants us to get out of his book or books. I'll say it another way. If you come away from the book of Acts saying, whoa, that Peter's pretty awesome. Whoa, Stephen is pretty awesome. Or whoa, that Paul is pretty awesome. Or whoa, that Apollos or Priscilla or Aquila are pretty awesome. Then you've missed what Luke wants you to see. The real question is, why are they awesome? How does Luke phrase the introduction to a second volume? He says that he had previously written about all that Jesus began to say and do. What's the implication? Luke is saying that the book of Acts is all about what Jesus continues to do. King Jesus is doing things in the book of Acts, and he still is. All the hindrances in the book, all the hindrances today, all the sin, all the suffering are there to show us here in the book of Acts that no matter what happens, Jesus can build his church. Throughout the book, Peter will do things, Stephen will do things, Paul and a host of others will do some impressive things, some what Luke calls extraordinary things. But mainly, Luke wants us to feel when we read these stories is this, all hail the power of Jesus' name. That's what Luke wants us to see. And that's what I want you to see this morning. Let me lead us in prayer and invite the worship team to lead us in a few more songs. Would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, as I think about this passage... I think you'd want us to know that it's good for us at times to tremble. To have a sense of your majesty and power and strength. Such that the problems in our lives feel as they are, as Paul would describe elsewhere, as momentary and light. In the presence of the hope of the gospel. Lord, as we sing out now about the King of Kings, igniting the flame that starts the church, that the gospel that goes forward shall not kneel, shall not faint, I pray that you would fill us with a hope and a joy that's as contagious as it was throughout Ephesus. We pray this in Jesus' name.